0: coming together for a three-month retreat is really a rare event in the world. There are not many places in the world where this happens. There might be a few monasteries here and there where there is this kind of commitment to long-term intensive practice. And as you could hear in the go-around this morning, there are people here from all over the world. and So it's a real gathering together for something that is extremely precious and quite rare. We've come together in these few days are sitting together and talking together and working together. And on Saturday evening, a bell will ring, and we enter a whole new land. We'll enter a land of silence. we we'll a land of aloneness. A land of oneness. Of a certain depth and intensity of experience. And the bell rings on Saturday evening, and we enter this land. It's a land where experience is tremendously immediate. A really... Coming face-to-face with ourselves, with our own minds, with our own bodies. Because it's a land without distraction, without diversion. It's tremendously powerful. The purpose of a retreat of this kind is precisely to come face-to-face with ourselves. To explore the nature of the mind, to explore the nature of the body. It's finding out in the deepest ways who we are. What is this thing that we call life? What actually is it? We have so many views or opinions or sentiments about it. But as to can see, moment after moment after moment, what is true in our experience. In three months of careful observation, there is so much to be learned about the nature of the mind. Over and over again, you will see the nature of craving and wanting, and the freedom from that. You will see all the different ways the mind creates trouble. All the ways the mind creates suffering. And you will also see the possibilities of a genuine freedom from that, a genuine happiness, a genuine peace, there is this tremendous richness of exploration. The word Vipassana means seeing clearly, it means to see things clearly. When we first begin, and I think this is true even for quite experienced yogis, the first days or weeks, the mind is a torrent, a rushing torrent of thoughts and feelings and memories and recollections and our preferences and our likes and our dislikes, and it's as if there's a huge discharge of our very recent experience and as the retreat goes on we start discharging or releasing long old past experiences so that we're opening up and everything that's within us starts to come to the surface starts to come up and out Meditation practice is to develop enough strength of mind so that we are able to see into this process not simply superficially not just the appearance of it but actually to see into the process in the deepest possible way It's for the purpose The coming together for for this retreat, the purpose is to develop, to train the mind, to strengthen the mind, this quality of a strong observing power. So that moment after moment, as our experience unfolds, the whole range of our experience, we can shine this observing power onto it and see and understand. At first, this observing power in the mind may be quite weak. You may find it extremely difficult to observe carefully and observe deeply. And many, many times the mind will go off and get lost and wander. But with a certain commitment, a certain dedication in practice, coming back again and again and again, this great mystery of meditation begins to happen. The Pali word for meditation is bhavana, and it literally means mental development. So there's a great meaning in this word. The implication is that we have the potential, we have the capacity to actually develop our minds, to strengthen this observing power, this quality. And that's what happens over the course of this time. When we develop this strength, when the mind develops, through a dedicated practice, we go beyond the appearance of experience. Because if we're plunging in to a new level of reality, a new level of understanding, and this is not a metaphor, this is actually what happens. It's because if we drop to the level of the elemental forces of the mind and body, and so there's a huge excitement about this discovery, about this journey. The coming into an understanding of new levels of ourselves, new levels of who we are. This is not easy. It is not an easy task. It takes a tremendous commitment of purpose. Buddha talks of meditation practice, mind development, of swimming upstream, swimming against the current, the current of all our habits and our usual ways of being. It's not so difficult to swim upstream for ten minutes, to swim upstream for a month or two months, or three months. One has to be very determined, very resolute. It's possible. The beauty of these retreats, we've seen it now 15 times. The retreats that we've done here, there's this tremendous support that we all give to one another in this journey. The important thing to understand about commitment is that it cannot be forced. We can't force ourselves to be committed because that kind of commitment is very difficult to sustain. We burn out. There's another place that commitment can come from that is like an underground wellspring of energy, and that place of commitment is the place of interest, is the place of willingness. We do this, we practice, because we're interested to know, we're interested to understand, we're interested in finding out what is the nature, what is the truth of our lives. So then even when it's difficult, even when we go through the ups and downs and changes and the many, many things that will happen, the many cycles, through it all we can sustain our commitment because we're interested. With this quality, there's no coercion of mind, we're not coercing ourselves. There's a willingness to look, a willingness to see, a wanting to understand. Very often, in the course of the retreat, we will be speaking about the need for great effort, really heroic effort. There's another side to that. That's half of it. The other half is great surrender. It's the effort and the willingness and the interest to surrender to what is true, to surrender to the Dhamma. And so if we can balance these two, that's when our practice goes straight ahead. It's called a surrendering or opening to what is there. One of the great beauties of the practice is that it is so simple. It's not easy to do, but it is very simple. To observe carefully, to surrender, to open to what is there in each moment, over and over again. I'd like to talk about one of the things in practice which is extremely difficult for us to understand in a balanced way. It's one of the things about which the mind has strong reactions, and yet I feel that there's something of tremendous value in it. And that is the importance for us of articulating for ourselves the goal and the aim of practice. Where is it going? Where is it leading? Where do we want it to go? When I first went to India to, to practice in, you know, in the 60s, my I Indraji, who was my first teacher, the very first question he asked me was, what's the goal of your practice? Why are you meditating? And I was very direct and very, really through everything back on myself, why am I doing this? I think that's a question, especially in these few days of orientation, that would be well worth reflecting on. The idea of a goal, or an aim in practice, I think is difficult for many people to hear or consider because we add many things to it. To this idea of a goal, we add expectation, we add hope, we add ambition, we add despair, we can do it, we can't do it, we're not worthy, All of that is extra. It has nothing to do with having a sense of purpose or having a goal or having an aim. Very interesting. One time some years ago, we had a group here at the center. And we asked people what they felt about enlightenment as the goal of practice. And almost everybody in the group was upset by it. And it was startling. And the reason people got upset was because of this addition. People felt that somehow if we have a goal that's interpreted psychologically as meaning we're unworthy. But somehow right now, we're not good enough because there's this goal outside of ourselves. That's a psychological addition. We're adding, we're confusing something very important. Because the real understanding of the goal of practice or the aim of practice is not to reach something outside of ourselves. It's not an ambition, it's not a striving for something out there, but it is a recognition of our own greatest potential. The potential for opening, the potential for enlightenment is within us, it's not outside of us. And so can we honor that can we honor that potential? Because if we do, it gives a tremendous inspiration to us in practice. As you reflect about this in the next few days, you may find that you have several aims, several purposes, several goals in coming. Maybe it's simply to live more in the present moment, to train the mind to do that. Maybe it's to come out of some kind of suffering that the mind is in. Maybe it's an excitement about opening to different levels of reality. Maybe it's to become Buddha. And be any or all of these articulating this well for oneself serves us in several different ways. First, it becomes a reference point for our efforts. If we have a clear sense of aim, of purpose, of why we're here, of what we want to accomplish, then we can see at any time are our actions leading to that or are they leading away from it. If we don't have a clear sense of purpose, we don't know. There's There's no reference point for us in our practice or in our lives. So this sense of purpose gives a strong sense of direction to us, strong quality of meaning. Articulating the purpose of being here, the purpose of your practice, also reveals the necessary level of commitment of effort. What is necessary to achieve what I want? So we don't deceive ourselves. If we have the goal to become Buddha, I takes a lot of effort. We should know this. We should know what it takes so we can rise to it, so we can actually arouse that energy in ourselves. When we don't have a clear vision of where we're going, of what's possible of the aim of practice what can happen is that we often settle for less than what is possible and the beauty and the power of the Buddha's vision his landscape of the Dharma is so vast it's so big it's so huge and as we come to explore it and understand it we can aim ourselves for the highest understanding what's necessary in that undertaking not with ambition not with expectation but with a sense of confidence with a certain sense of balance a sense of maturity about what's needed and we practice and we develop One of the teachings which Meninjaji gave me very early on in my practice, and which was of tremendous help to me, saved me enormous amounts of suffering. He said, in spiritual practice, time is not a factor. We try to usually measure everything in time, especially in this culture. Somebody once wrote a letter to this place addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) No. (laughs) If we just let go of time and reading the suttis and the discourses and the stories of people in the Buddhist time all the way up until the present day, what inspires me tremendously is the dedication of people in practice, seeing practice over a lifetime. Some people heard a few lines of the Buddha, a few words of the Buddha, became enlightened, became fully enlightened, just in hearing. And the stories of other people struggling for 30 years, 40 years, 60 years, getting enlightened. People going through this lifetime, getting enlightened in the next. So we can let go of a time-bound notion of when we would like things to happen. It would be lovely if all of you were hearing to tonight's talk, became fully enlightened. But in case that doesn't happen it's possible just to let go of the idea of time the next three months is an opportunity to walk along the path if you have a clear sense of purpose a clear sense of aim then your direction will be straight surrender to the dhamma surrender to what is going to happen we don't know in my own practice I found that that attitude of surrendering to the dhamma both gave a lot of energy to practice and also a lot of spaciousness in practice it will all unfold by itself There are a few favorite activities of yogis that seem to be meditation, but actually aren't. And so I thought I would mention them to you. One thing that meditation is not, it's not thinking about things. I'm sure you've noticed quite clearly how much the mind likes to think. And it thinks about everything. Sometimes we come in and sit, and it becomes a wonderful problem-solving session. We solve the problems of our relationships, of our family, of our work. It may be helpful as a solution to problems. It's not meditation. And so just be aware of being able to see that. Something else that happens quite characteristically in practice is that our minds become brilliant and creative. And we're sitting and all these amazingly brilliant ideas come. You know, and we start writing the great novel or whatever one's own particular aptitude ha- happens to be. In my early days of practice, <laughs> it's quite uh, funny from this perspective, for some reason my mind got into designing meditation centers. And I was a <laughs> weeks kind of going over these designs in my mind, what are things are being? It was very entertaining, but it was not meditation. It was something else. Sometimes we get caught not only by problem-solving or creative ideas, sometimes we get caught in Dharma reflections, Dharma thoughts. And they're particularly seductive because when our mind gets lost in those kinds of thoughts and reflections, then we feel that we really are meditating. But that is also something a little different. This is not to suggest that you should not have any thoughts because that suggestion would be quite useless. The thoughts are gonna come, and many will come, and it's not bad that they come. It doesn't make us bad yogis, that so we have thoughts. It's simply to have the understanding that when we see them, at the point that we become aware, we can recognize them, we can note them, we can label them, and let go. If you can remember that over the three months, I think it will serve your practice very well. So meditation is not thinking about things particularly. It's not psychotherapy. It's very therapeutic, and lots of psychological stuff is going to come up. And that's all part of the practice. But the purpose, the aim, is not psychotherapy, because we want to go beyond the level of our personal story. A lot of that material will surface, and there's a tremendous cleansing that happens as part of this unfolding. The problem with that level is that it's so interesting, and we get seduced by it, we get caught by it. So again, if you can remember to let all of this material come up, to see it, to know it, to label it, and let it go, because the practice will actually lead us beyond the personal, Leads us to a deeper and more universal experience. Perhaps most of you know that this is and I were teaching in the Soviet Union, And what was so striking, and this has happened many times in teaching in different places, even with cultures and backgrounds and conditioning that are so different, and the stories that these people have to tell was so different in our experience, and yet as we sat in the retreat, it was so clear that the nature of our minds was exactly the same. The same questions, the same hindrances, the same strengths. There's something quite beautiful about coming to that place of commonality, to see that the nature of our minds, the nature of ourselves in the most deep place, is the same. And so when we understand ourselves, we understand everyone else. It really creates not just an idea of oneness, but the actual experience of oneness. Meditation is not getting lost in thinking about things. It's not psychotherapy, particularly. The last thing that it's not, it's not a holiday. It's hard work. I think that's good to appreciate, even from the very beginning. Otherwise, there will be a tremendous disappointment. This is not easy. It takes a tremendous dedication, tremendous willingness and inspiration to go through all of the changes that you will. There are many surprises on this path. We can open to experiences that are wonderful and blissful and happy in ways that we never imagined. And we come to places that are so filled with suffering that we never imagined. Our bodies can become so light it feels as if they're floating in the air. And we can experience such intense painful feelings. It's all part of it. It's all part of this fantastic journey. a willingness to observe the whole range of our experience to surrender to the Dhamma part of this willingness comes from a spirit of renunciation Buddha talk a lot about renunciation and it becomes very clear on a retreat like this that underlying or profusing the whole retreat is the spirit what is it that we're renouncing? one of the important things that we renounce on retreat is the idea of comfort or pleasure as the guiding principle in our lives as a guiding principle in our choices. For this time, for these three months, that is not the criterion of whether something is comfortable or pleasurable. That is not what gives us its value. So to let go of that, to let go of that idea, requires a renunciation. We see that there's another value, which is higher, which is greater. We renounce our attachments to family and friends. Now for three months, you come here and it's going to be a period of silence and aloneness. So it's really giving something up. It's giving up the comfort that we get from association. And this renunciation allows us or or gives us the power to explore a whole new realm. Another level of renunciation is the renouncing of our past. Letting go of it. Relative to a deepening of practice the past is already gone. It does not matter. So can we let go? And bring to bear the power of this observing quality of mind just to what's here now. So renunciation. It's a great renunciation. Because what we're letting go of is our whole image of ourselves. Of who we are, of who we think we are. Letting go. There is a tremendous vastness to this journey. The vision of Dhamma that we open to is enormous. And so we're coming together for this retreat is really a great and rare event. The end of one of the great philosophical works by Spinoza, his ethics, he ended his book by saying all noble things are as difficult as they are rare. This is the noblest. The purification of the mind. Freeing the mind. Freeing the heart. It's the noblest thing that we can do. It's difficult and it's rare. And so there's a tremendous sense of respect for all of you as you undertake this practice. Do you have any questions or comments either about anything I mentioned or Anything else that's on your mind? <laughs> Did you all get in That would be wonderful. <laughs> okay. Um. using the noting with move place but noticing that the mind even though the, the labeling was there the mind was not really with the movement one of the benefits of the noting is that it reveals that situation to you quicker than if you were not noting in other words if you're not noting you could go an hour more or less there more or less than more but not really know it but the contrast between having the noting going mechanically and the fact that the labels are going the feet are moving and there's no connection that becomes so obvious so it's a very good feedback as soon as you notice that, whether it's in a few minutes or five minutes, just stop for a moment, re-aim the mind, making the connection again, and you begin again. We'll be talking in these next days about different different ways the noting works as a tool. Mostly, it is this wonderful feedback system in many different ways. It really tells you what's going on relative to your observing power. Are you connected or are you not connected? Are you judgmental or not judgmental? Lots of things uh-uh. You know, are deal by that. I get that a lot. Try to find a middle way between experimenting with that. It's, it's an interesting ex- experiment to just kind of put the watch down. Because we have these as a kind of security. You know. um, and so I think it's useful to experiment in that way. But I'd be careful also about going to the other extreme, about making that idea of experimentation um, of obsessive concern. Because it's not the main it's not the main thing to do. It can be a help, and so I, I appreciate you know, your experimenting with it. I would take it a little more easily. You know, you, you can put your watch on if you can manage to get by the clock without glancing at it. Fine. If you happen to go going inside of the other so to create, to create a spaciousness around it, I think will actually serve you the best. You know, very first retreat that uh, Sean and I taught in this country it was a month-long retreat at uh, the Sequoia Forest in California. It was up in the mountains and the giant Sequoias and uh, people living in tents. It was, it was a wonderful month. Uh, and some people were experimenting with degrees of silence. Taking it to an extreme of coming in to, for interviews and not speaking. Just writing, writing everything. It didn't work very well. It was, it was carried too much, too far. Uh, and so in many of these disciplines, which are good to do, because they really, you know, just break up old patterns, there's also a sense of, you know, doing a lot of I think Steve was one of them. <laughs> 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 it, it, just, it just came back to me. <laughs> Who that yogi <yelling> was. <laughs> I think there were a couple. <laughs> okay, I, I am really delighted to be beginning this retreat again. It, it is a wonderful time. Um, so I hope you share it and have a Thank you.